Um, Burden kids, you guys, I see you heading out. You guys can be dismissed to your class in the classroom. If you have a Bible, go to James. We're in the book of James. We're in the final chapter of James, James 5. Uh, James 5 is, is really just a, a ruthless chapter. I mean, the whole book of James is ruthless, but remember all of his invitations and all of his warnings are invitations into joy. And so uh, this last final chapter, really, you could preach about 1,700,000 sermons uh, in this last chapter alone. And we thought about doing almost just one or two. We figured let's at least do three uh, just to glean all that God might want to say in this. So we're just going to be in one through six uh, next week, going a little bit farther and then ending the 25th before we roll into Easter. Can't believe I'm even saying Easter. Uh, or Good Friday, so with snow on the roof, it's just uh, nuts. So uh, glad the Holy Spirit got us up, glad he brought us here. Uh, this is a preacher's um, most hated Sunday in the sense of uh, I treasure sleep, so uh, missing that hour is deeply meaningful to me. So if I'm a little grumpy, uh, just blame daylight savings time uh, on that. Um, we're, we're in the book of James. What we do is we kind of we go through this, and here's what, what we've been learning in James. James is uh, the younger brother of Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, and uh, Jesus actually had a, had a fairly large family that's believed, uh, according to church history and even the scriptures as you read it. And uh, what happens is James is a guy who grew up uh, with Jesus, watched his life, and still thought he was crazy as he claimed to be God. And then ultimately Jesus goes and dies on the cross for Satan, sin, and death, rises again, meets James. James is transformed by seeing the resurrected Jesus, who is his older brother, and he goes on to be a pillar of the faith. Galatians 2 will tell you he's like Paul in that he is all about getting this message out. The one message that he thought his brother was telling that was once crazy is now life-giving. And so uh, he goes out, he is uh, preaching and teaching much like Jesus, and you're going to see it a lot. We've seen it a lot through the letter, but even particularly right here in this text today, you're going to see a lot of themes from Jesus. Jesus' brother come out in the ways that he um, teaches and pastors these churches. And uh, one thing we've been seeing James do um, as he pastors like his older brother Jesus is, is this. He, he doesn't simply go after your behavior. Now this is super important to get, uh, super important to understand. He, is, he wants to get to the heart of your behavior. So he's not just trying to fix your hands, he's trying to fix your heart. He knows the only thing that can fix your heart is something outside of you, which is Jesus Christ. And so uh, he continues to lay before you these, these things, these places in you that you're incapable of being good at without something outside of you making your heart new to actually walk rightly, okay? To actually enjoy God, enjoy his mission to be, be living as God wired you and designed you. And so um, as he does this, as he continually goes after your heart and just, just, just your hands, I, I want to say most of us, the reason James has uh, kind of maybe unearthed some things in us is because we don't like that. If we're honest, church people, I think we like knowing to what to do and what not to do. So uh, pastor, just give me this to do and this not to do and this to do and this not to do, but don't touch my heart. Right? Don't go there. Don't go playing around with the, this organ in here that's the seat of my emotions. Don't go messing with how I feel and what I want and don't want. Just tell me what to do and not do. And I'm telling you, that's not the gospel. That's religious activity. That's morality. That's something else outside of what God lays before us in the Bible as his son slaughtered for you. Not so that you're a tweaked version of your old self, but made totally new with a new heart, mind, and soul. Okay? So, so this, is, this is what we want. We want you to realize that that's what James is after because that's that's what God is after, and he witnessed it mostly in even the, the life and ministry of his brother Jesus. And this is why James turns the corner here and begins to address wealth. 
Um, he doesn't ultimately want our money because God doesn't ultimately want your money. He could care less. He's infinitely rich. He doesn't need your pennies and dollars and, or even trillions, right? He, he owns it. He made your money. So uh, he, he's good. He owns cattle on a thousand hills. Psalm 50 will tell us he's after your heart. That's why he'll say in Matthew 6, hey, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So uh, if I can get you to uh, be exposed and you're longing for material and luxury and wealth, then I can get your heart. Uh, and that's really what God is after, and that's why James is also turning the corner here, because um, he's addressing wealth, something that his older brother Jesus talks much about. Um, and, and here's why, ultimately, he wants us to be satisfied in him and him alone. Uh, he wants our hearts, like, like our beings, to be satisfied in him and him alone. And here's the truth. We're being lured into discontentment 24 hours a day, seven days a week, four weeks a month, 12 months a year. Are we not? So we're, we're being bought into and lured into this, all these ways the world will say, have this, do this, make this, fix this in such a way that then you'll be satisfied, right? Then you'll be content. Then your, your heart will be set. And James is going, that'll never happen. In fact, it'll ultimately betray you. Uh, ultimately, that will be uh, the one thing that you think is an asset will ultimately be your liability, uh, and that's what he's going to show here in this text this morning. And so, um, like any good gifts, we pervert them. Money is not intrinsically evil. We take it and make it God, just like fire. Fire is a good gift, keeps us warm, but if you play around with it, it can burn you to the ground, right? So let's, let's just be honest about it. There are all things that are good gifts, and if we do something wrong with that gift, then it's on us. It's not on God. God says this is to be used as worship. God says this is good for you. And when we take it and take his toys and run and then shake our fists at him, we just look silly. And so he, James is continually showing us that. So uh, let me just read a text before we get to James 5. Le leave your Bible there, but 2 Corinthians 5. I was thinking about this text a lot as I was studying James 5. Um, I just, I just want to read it to you because um, James is helping you understand you're not supposed to feel satisfied here. Like, that's really the heart of James. Like, you shouldn't feel at ease with all the earth is here and now. Like, like, like with all the fracture and all the sin and all the turmoil, you shouldn't feel that way. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, what Paul says. He says this, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Um, does that sound like someone who's satisfied with here? Right? I mean, he, he's giving us this illustration as Christians. We should feel like we're in this, this tent where we're literally like naked, like we're uncomfortable. I, mean, I need to be clothed. I need something else to make me feel satisfied and content and at home, and it's not here. Like, like we're not going to feel satisfied here. We're actually longing and groaning as Christians for the return of Jesus Christ, for him to push away all injustice, for him to push back evil once and forever, for him to come and fully reign and rule, not just in our hearts, but in our land, in a new Jerusalem, in a place where sin is no more, right? And he is fully glorified in all of its fullness. So, so we're longing for that. Now, now here's the crazy thing is um, we think often that we are supposed to be satisfied here. Um, so what we'll do is we'll try to set up our life so that our life is satisfied, 
right? We'll, we'll, we'll actually think that we can do all that. So we'll, we'll grab certain things and organize certain things. And this is last week, right? Strategize, have goals, all the while thinking those will be a buffer against anxieties and fears in our life. And we think, okay, once I get all that, then, then I'm satisfied. Then I'm here, then I'm good, then everything is at ease. And the problem is sometimes we think we succeed, which is totally scary because then we think, man, life here really is better than life with Jesus Christ, right? Because James is trying to show us, no, life being satisfied is not found here. It's found above in Jesus Christ, right? The Father above who lives in heavenly lights, who gives good gifts to his children. Man, that's where contentment's found. That's where life is found. That's where purpose is found. That's where fulfillment is found. And we sometimes think we can organize our life in such a way to where all of a sudden, ultimately, we are satisfied. We believe that being apart from him is better than with with him. Instead of this scriptural, biblical, right understanding of, no, I'm longing to see him face to face, we instead think we live in this bubble. And so when something's off, we're like, fix it, God. Like, alter this. And then we think, right, we get angry at him because he's not fixing our perfect life. He hasn't organized it just right, so we feel satisfied. And then we cry out, get angry, and go, well, man, how can there be a God if I'm feeling dissatisfied? I mean, how can there be a God if everything's not perfect? No, you should not feel satisfied because without him, right? You shouldn't feel satisfied without him. You should feel unsatisfied without him. And this is what he's showing us is something is wrong if you are satisfied on this planet without him. Okay, that, that's the truth. So let's look at what uh, he's going to say here in verse 1. He's going to come out swinging. I mean, he's been doing that since day one, but he's going to continue to get at our hearts. Verse 1, here's what he says. And let me tell you this. Some, some people go, wow, this seems so random. He all of a sudden just starts burning into wealth. Actually, I think there's a lot of similarity last week with if you're a person who thinks you have control of your life, you're going to be a depiction of this person here. If you think you can control tomorrow uh, and you think that God is not sovereign and you are, then you're actually going to become what we see here. Verse 1, James says this, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Okay, now, just to uh, challenge some of you, if you're going, man, okay, I don't like James, right? He's not Jesus, he's not God, Paul, okay, so let's leave him out. No, um, if you have issue with James, you have issue with Jesus, um, because Jesus spoke about these very same things. You can go to the Old Testament and find Amos and other profound prophetic books that just get after this idea of our identity and idolatry and wealth and not in God, and so here, uh, James is just following the footsteps of his brother Jesus. If you read Jesus, one of the most profound sermons he preached, he talks about these, this parable of soils, right? And he gives, it's illustrative of salvation. He gives kind of four soils, and one of the soils is that thorny soil, and he says the gospel's given out. These are the people that they hear the good news of Jesus, that he died for sin, that he offers reconciliation with God, that he gives his righteous life for your sinful life, and, and they read that, hear that, and they go, oh, that's pretty cool, and they start to walk with him, and then all of a sudden they buy the lie that the, the commands of God are the enemy of joy, and they think that God's trying to take from them so they go after riches and pleasures of life he says and Jesus says eventually it chokes you out and it just outgrows and out ruins the gospel seed Jesus is just as serious about the dangers of this um, evil's not I mean money's not evil but it's a dangerous toy it's a really bad idol and, and Jesus warns about this just like James is here. And so what happens is um, people no longer go from being after Jesus, they're after something from Jesus. 
Right? You want something that you think Jesus can't give you when really he gives you everything. I mean, that's the fundamental lie and why we either choose something outside of him or choose him. And James is sharing the same thing that Jesus has talked about. You forfeit your relationship with Jesus for a counterfeit God. So who is he speaking to here? Now, he's speaking generally and specifically. Uh, and here's why I say that. He, he's, he's in a general sense, because I know our minds. Some of us are going, well, I'm not really rich, so he ain't talking to me. You're checking out. No, listen. Uh, if you make more than 20000 a year, you're in the top 2% globally. Do you know that? You're rich on a global scale. The problem is you're just surrounded by Bergen County crazies and you're looking at what everybody else drives and you're in a little incubator bubble. But if you get outside of this to the, to the billions of people on the planet, you're in the top 2%. You're very wealthy. You're very wealthy. So in one sense, we should, we should heed this and not write it off. In a, a, a secondary sense, he's specifically, yes, talking to non-Christians because in his letter he says, hey, brothers, brothers, brothers. And here he says, hey, you rich. That's their identity. That's their worth. That's who they are. Um, he calls them by the thing that defines them. Uh, and this is what he's saying here to the rich. He says, um, you're going to hell. Uh, Jesus doesn't tell Christians you're going to hell. Um, and James doesn't tell Christians you're going to hell. He says, ultimately here, that you've laid up treasure on the day of judgment. The problem is not that you're rich, he says. The problem is that your worth is in your wealth and not in God. That's the issue here. Uh, you've got riches. You've got clothes that are, that are rotten and moth-eaten. You've got so many clothes, you don't even, even need to wear them. You should be giving those clothes away. You should be sharing those clothes. You've got a neighbor that's unclothed. and let it, You think you're building your closet is, is better identity for you. He goes, you've got you know, maybe a, a house of three with seven bedrooms. You know, there's three people in your family with four SUVs. And they just sit and rust in the driveway. You drive one like twice a year. He's saying the way that you're demonstrating your wealth, your wallet's revealing your Savior. The ways that you spend your money. I, I always say a lot. Um, uh, the two ways you can really know anything about anybody is just by checking their bank account and their internet history. Uh, that, that's very simply what will reveal most of what's in our heart's affections. What we long for. And here James is saying this same thing. He's saying you're demonstrating by your life that your wealth and your worth is not in Jesus it's in his stuff. Now we need to be careful when reading this because um, he's not talking to faithful, Jesus-loving, wealthy people. Um, there are faithful, Jesus-loving, wealthy people who God has blessed and he has given good resources and they use their life for the mission of Jesus Christ. And they give generously and they love him. Uh, so being wealthy doesn't mean you're, you're somehow like intrinsically evil. Uh, God chooses who to give and who not to give to. This is awful last week. Don't think you built your empire. Anything you have is from him. Anything you've given is, is from him. So no one can boast and say, oh, well, I've got this, so I'm secure. No, God could take it in a second. We don't know the phone calls coming tomorrow. Uh, so here he's showing us that here, that this is, he's talking to um, the, the unfaithful rich. He's talking about the, the unbelieving rich. Because you could have Christian rich, Christian poor. You can have unchristian rich, unchristian poor. Uh, you can have poor people that are just as consumed with wealth as a wealthy person. And that's still their idol and that's still their worth. Uh, rich and poor does not designate who's more holy. Um, Jesus designates if you're holy and righteous because you're in him. 
And so here we're seeing that he's showing you have another comforter, you have another identity. He says, basically here, the ungodly rich, he says, your clothes are rotting, wealth is corroding, and your God is watching. And he says, you've laid up treasure, but it's ultimately going to be evidence against you and eat your flesh like fire. What's James saying? He's saying, everything that you think are your assets will ultimately be your greatest liabilities. That's 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 real. All these things you're accumulating for yourself that you think are, are securing you and helping you protect yourself from fears and anxiousness in the world around you, anything bad happening, it will ultimately be the very thing that is testified against you on the day of judgment. Um, you worshiped wealth more than Jesus. Your wallet will reveal your Savior. You've been using wealth as this type of future hope. So you've been taking wealth and using it as hope, not, not using Jesus as hope, not using Jesus as security, Jesus as your comforter, Jesus as everything to you. You're using wealth, you're building up something that you think will protect you more than Jesus himself. And this rolls into last week. Just like you try to control tomorrow, right? That's birth from anxiety and worry in the same way we use wealth, especially in Bergen County, New Jersey, New York City area. We use wealth in a way to try to buffer ourselves from anxiety and fears, do we not? So just like last week, we try to control tomorrow with our, with just birth from anxiety and fears. The reason we really go after wealth is the same reason. It's the same heart issue, we don't think Jesus is good. We don't think he's in control. We don't think he really loves us. We don't think he really has our best interest in, his best interest in mind. And so if I can just accumulate and set my life upright, I'll be at ease and I'll be satisfied and I'll be okay. And he's saying, man, you, you chasing that life is going to become your greatest liability. You're storing up for yourself something very, very different because the truth is wealth actually increases our anxiety. It increases our worry. I mean, listen, it doesn't shield you and buffer you from them. It increases it. I mean, I mean, just think about this. I, just practically, I, I remember when I was in high school, we begged my dad to get us a car. I was one of four, and I remember he bought us this beat-up Pinto for like $300. And literally, I remember taking my brother in it, and we couldn't wait to drive to our high school to show everybody that we had a car. And I was going like 17 and a half miles per hour. And my brother's like, dude, can you go faster? I go, I'm flooring it. I mean, the pedal was all the way down. I, I couldn't push it farther. What is it? And we're driving. And you could hit speed bumps going as fast as the car could take you, right? I mean, we're, we're going through beat up, hole in the floor. Uh, and then what happens is we get older. We get nicer cars. And you know what happens? I start noticing every ding and dent. I start getting worried about where I'm going to park. That Pinto, man, I parked it on the lacrosse field. Just ran that thing out there. It didn't even matter what I did because who really cares? Man, take your baseball bat. Baseball teams hated lacrosse players, so everybody wanted to come in my car because when they brought their baseball bats out, doesn't matter, hit me. Hit me. It got, it got plenty. As soon as you start growing in wealth and accumulating more, you get more anxiety. You, you get a nicer house, all of a sudden you start noticing all those shrubs that are out of place. Right? Well, that one has a long limb. Didn't notice it before. All of a sudden, as wealth gets into your life, you realize that, man, it increases your anxiety. Your wealth does not buffer you. It invites more of it. And James knows this. Jesus knows this. God knows this because he made us. And so he's warning us that it's misery. Instead of wealth protecting your fears, it just adds more new ones. 
This is why Jesus always says he's after our hearts, not simply our hands. This is why in Matthew 6, he says, where your treasure is, your heart will also be. See, this is why whenever um, we begin to pursue life, fulfillment, purpose, and wealth, and not God, there's inescapable conflict. And, and the reason for this is um, wealth, and, and just because James is dealing with wealth, we could substitute anything in here, does not have the power or ability to be God for you. It just does not have that authority. It does not have that, um, that thing. I mean, if you make success in your job ultimate, if you make your spouse ultimate, if you make your kids ultimate, if you make anything ultimate, here it's wealth. If you make wealth ultimate, it will consistently betray you. It will consistently not uphold your expectation. All that you're trying to glean from it, all you're trying to win from it, he's showing us here that, man, the beauty of Christianity is if your happiness is in wealth alone to dictate your glee, dictate your joy, he goes, man, you're always going to be off the rails. Life will constantly be in disorder. But if you're after God, the Father of heavenly lights, who gives good gifts to his children, who invites you into life, invites you into joy through his gracious warnings, knowing that money is like fire, you can use it well, it can keep you warm, it can also burn you to the ground, you'll be much more aware as to not worship wealth, but steward wealth. You'll be a lot more aware how to, how to enjoy these good gifts God gives you without making them God instead. And this is what he's showing us. C.S. Lewis said this beautiful, beautiful quote. He said, when I have learned to love God better than all my earthly dearest, I will love my earthly dearest better than I do now. And when, when all that you possess and bound up is bound up in God staying God of your life, you're the most free man or woman who lives. Because anything can be taken and you're still on solid ground. You, you realize who you are in Jesus and what he's given you. Solomon, the Bill Gates, the Old Testament. We, we read of this a lot in Ecclesiastes too. If you go to Ecclesiastes, we studied that this summer. He said, man, I drank every drink I could find until I just got bored of it. Man, I had every type of woman I could find till I just got bored. I, I bought bigger houses with more outlandish landscapes with, with full commodities and a 30,000 staff member you know, a service for me. I had it all, and yet I maxed out on every type of pleasure, and it left me lonely, empty, and more frustrated. Endless accumulation is meaningless. And he really confronts us with just the, the brevity of life. That's why he's tying this on to last week. I mean, you don't know what tomorrow is. You're a, you're a mist. You're going to invest your life for things that will just burn up. My dad used to say something to me all the time that sticks in my head. He says, Mike, in the end, it's all going to burn. He used to always say that. I used to get so angry at that. Because I thought all the stuff I'm accumulating, my college years and striving for, not that it's not valuable and worthwhile, but the stuff that I make God in my life ultimately just going to go up and smoke. That, that's not what you're carrying with you. You're carrying your soul and where it stands before God based upon Jesus and his work. It's powerful what he's saying. This is why he says this in verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. He's now revealing these two groups he's talking to. There's a Christian group and a non-Christian group. There's a, there's a landowner and there's a worker. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. 
So he reveals these two groups, landowners and laborers. Landowners were unbelievers. They don't love God, don't love the things of God. They're abusing those below them. And this is just what happens. The more wealthy you get, you'll climb up the back of anyone to get what you want. You will oppress, you will be the source of injustice. And what happened here is these, these just faithful workers, right, they're just trying to make a living. They're trying to get paid. They're not getting paid. They come home at the end of the day. They sit at the table. Their whole kid's around eating dinner, and they're going, hey, Dad, did you get the paycheck? No, why didn't you get the paycheck? Well, I, I didn't get paid. He refuses to pay me. They start, families crying. Children are weeping. God is listening. Their cries reach the ears of God. This act of injustice reaches his ears to where he can hear them crying out, going, man, I'm just, this is what wealth does. This is the kind of person you become. You strive for making much of you and building your empire, you will be the source of injustice. You will be the one that runs over anyone and does not care about feelings and does not care about who they are, who does not, because all that you want is you. You're so self-indulgent, he says. You're so self-absorbed that in the office place, you'll just want to ratchet your way up to the top. You don't care who gets fired. You don't care who you push to the side. You don't care who you cheat. You'll do anything to acquire your wealth. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote an amazing book called Cost of Discipleship. I, I warn you, you're going to read it. Okay? You, might, you might die. Um, but this is, what he, this is what he said. Earthly goods deceive the human heart into believing that they give it security and freedom from worry. The truth is they are what cause your anxiety. They are given to be used, not collected. In the wilderness, God gave Israel the manna every day, and they had no need to worry about food and drink. Indeed, if they kept any of the manna until the next day, it went bad. In the same way, the disciple of Jesus Christ must receive his portion from God every day. If he stores it up as a permanent possession, he spoils not only the gift, but himself as well. For he sets his heart on accumulated wealth and makes a barrier between himself and God. Where our treasure is, there is our trust, our security, our consolation, and our God. Hoarding is idolatry. Bonhoeffer reminds us what James is warning against. Um, we're given all that we are by God to be used for God. Last week, we live open-handed, not closed-fisted. The second you start closing your fists on areas of your life, anger, resentment, discontent, because then what? God's not allowed to intervene? God's not allowed to take? God's not allowed to reorder? Well, I'm satisfied now, right? I'm good. No, you're satisfied without me. And then he comes in and tries to reorder and, and, and engage and kind of switch things around and orient your life so that you get more of him and we fight him and we fight him and we fight him and we fight him, not realizing that we are creating for ourselves great liability. That mourning increases, that grieving increases, that loss increases. So he says here in this text to these wealthy people who are ungodly, do not love Jesus, are not using their wealth for worship. He says, you're living in self-indulgence and so you defraud others. Back then, um, people had a lot of money. No, it's not like this at all today. Uh, they controlled the court system, right? Um, they, they controlled who was innocent. 
Nothing's changed. The wealthy control the court system. The wealthy control who's innocent. It's not good. And he says it in a different way. He says, you've fattened your hearts. Man, this is a, this is a gross illustration, but, but he just gives it anyways. I mean, he says, you are like cows, and you've got all this food in front of you. And, and, and you're just eating and eating and eating, and you're just building up for your empire, and you think you're really blessed. You're like, man, God's given me all this stuff so I can use it for me to make much of me. And you are hoarding as an idolater, and you're using it all for yourself. And he goes, man, you're getting just fatter and fatter and fatter, so you're a brighter torch on the day of judgment. So your flame is larger. You don't realize the irony of what you're doing. That's a sobering word James gives. The dangers of wealth. You're just increasing the judgment that will be upon you. You're just increasing the testimony when God says, you didn't love me, you loved your stuff. You didn't love Jesus, you loved your wealth. You loved your money way more than me. What are you talking about? Just look at your wallet. Look at your life. Look at how you spent your money. Look at the things that you did. Look at the ways you climbed up the backs of others with disregard for them. That's what he's saying. He's not realizing, you're not realizing that as you're eating all this, it'll one day betray you? You're not realizing as you're hoarding for yourself and building your mansions that one day it'll betray you? That you're just a fat cow getting fatter and fatter, just being ready to be judged by God for that? Because here's the reality, guys. You and I are are created eternal beings. We never eternally existed. God alone did. But we are created eternal beings in that we are all made the image of God and one day all of us will eternally exist either in the ever-expanding glory and grace of our great God through Jesus Christ or the ever-expanding witness of judgment through his just right wrath against us who in glad rebellion belittled his name. So, so, when we try to take an eternal thing, right? Ecclesiastes, eternity was written on your hearts. When you take any, an eternal soul and try to fill it with the temporary, it'll never work. Which is why we're endlessly dissatisfied until Jesus resolves that. Because wealth can't do that. He's showing this here. He's showing the reality that, man, we're eternal and the temporary can never satisfy. This is why we always feel like we need a little bit more. This is why no matter who you are in this room, I don't care who you are, all of us, myself included, will admit when we leave this room, get into our car, and get home for our day, there's something that's pestering us. There's something that we want that we do not have that we think will resolve the discontentment. And you can go get that thing. Go to Walmart this evening, buy it, right? Buy the bigger screen, the nicer car, the longer driveway, the higher fence. I don't do whatever you want to do and I'm telling you then you know what's going to happen a week from now? Something else. I'll start pestering you. You can talk to the wealthiest of the wealthy, talk to celebrities, look at the obituaries. It did not cure anything. In fact, it increased their loneliness. It increased their lostness. It increased their their wanderings. It's 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 grievous, right? So James is saying, man, I want to protect you from this. Look at what 1 Timothy says. It says in chapter 6, nowhere, no, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, he calls it, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. See, Timothy's just saying what James has been saying, what Jesus has said, what the whole Bible has said. He's saying, man, when you try to take a created eternal being and satisfy its heart with the temporal, things just get off. There are these these pangs, these pesters that constantly nag you, thinking you need more of what you don't possess to find contentment. And and he's showing here how, how this just leaves us thirsty and hungry for more. Those whose God and passion is just to accumulate will be far more prone to oppress others and climb up their backs than those who are content. So when the gospel of Jesus Christ is not present, this is how we will be. We were not created to be satisfied with the here and now, 2 Corinthians 5. We were not made to be in this tent where we can have all that we want and be who we are and be totally satisfied. We were created to be satisfied with Jesus who is the face of God, right? He is the glory of God. We need him. We need to have him and then satisfaction bursts forth. And then all of a sudden, we're not hoarders, we're not defrauders, we're generous givers. Because it's not ultimate. It's not our God. It doesn't rule our life. This is why if you read the New Testament, um, it will talk about how we've been given the circumcision of the heart. You'll see this a lot in Colossians and other places. What that means is your identity is no longer external, it's internal. I love that. Right? My identity is no longer Mike Reed, white guy. Mike Reed, upper class Bergen County pastor. Mike Reed, 225 William Street pastor. No, my identity is fully bound up and I am his and he is mine. I've been circumcised with the heart, man. Everything in who I am is Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain. So, so now, no matter what the world says is good that can boost my empire and self-esteem or what it's taken from me, I'm still on solid ground because the one thing that's unwavering that never changes, I've got him. And he's got me, and that's my fundamental identity. It's not my race, it's not my street address, it's not my bank account, it's not my family lifestyle, it's nothing but Jesus, right? So that's where my identity is, that's where I'm rooted, that's where I'm unshakable, and I have to constantly, brothers and sisters, fight for that every day just like you do. But as soon as you wander from that, things get out of order and you get off the rails, This is what James is warning us of. And none of that is because I'm righteous. It's because he's so merciful. I remember when I was in uh, college really beginning to understand the gospel, right? And and I remember this reality of, of, of just God's ownership, him possessing me, lordship, like like being revealed, me going, wait, I'm not my own anymore? Like I don't I don't call the shots anymore. Like, I'm not an authority of Mike Reed anymore. I mean, how many of you, you don't have to show your hands, but, but man, when, when you thought you became a Christian, right, um, if you had heard this, not sure you'd be so quick to join Team Jesus, right? No, no, he he's, owns you. He bought you. He had his son slaughtered for you. You don't, you don't walk around and say, well, oh, I know what's satisfying now. Oh, I know the good things to pick. No, he says, no, I'm going to tell you. And you can trust the Father heart of God. You can trust that I'm for you. You can trust I'm good. You can trust that I care for you. You can trust that all of my warnings are invitations into something better. Maybe some of us would have been a lot slower to join Team Jesus. 
But listen, that's not a negative thing. That's not a bad thing. He's much better control than you are. Man, he is way better in charge than you. That's a very, very good thing. So whenever you see passages like this, you need to be careful because there's two really bad teachings, and I want to keep addressing it. Because I've seen these two camps split and think that one's holy. You've got prosperity theology and poverty theology. So if you're not careful, you're going to read this text and go, and like the, 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 prosper, or the poverty gospel that says, oh yeah, um, the poorer you are, the more favored you are before the Lord. Just suffer a lot. Just, just make sure you live with nothing. Um, no, that's just a self-righteous attempt to earn God. That's not loving God. Uh, then you have the prosperity theology that says, oh, if you really love God, man, you'll be really rich. Uh, that's not a way to love God. That's just a way to use God to get your God. What I love about the Bible, the gospel says, no, we're all dirt poor. Jesus alone makes you rich. <laughs> so, so we're all on the same playing field, and Jesus alone takes his riches in glory, and he credits them to you, and he makes the poorest of poor. This is, this is even in, in Corinthians where he says, man, Jesus came, and by his poverty, he's made you rich. He, he identified, he takes our poverty on himself and makes you the richest affair. Neither riches or sacrifice will ever get you to God. Do not ever read a text thinking that if you're poor or you give away more, you're somehow more holy. Or if because you have wealth, you're more blessed. So how does the gospel free us? How does Jesus Christ, how does the incarnate son coming, living, dying, rising, how does this free us from the pangs of wealth, the enticements of the flesh? Um, The gospel's fundamentally rooted in generosity. I mean, this is the essence of the gospel, right? He sends, he gives, he provides, he cares for, he forgives. Man, he sent Jesus. God gave his son. You didn't give his son. You weren't trying to grab him, right? In our glad rebellion, we were running, and he gave, he sent, he goes, he comes after. I mean, God's a generous God, and I love it, and he's the one who helps us get out of financial slavery and escape the double trap of prosperity gospel and poverty gospel, and he sets us on a place where we're now stewards for kingdom purposes. So now the buffer from the anxieties and fears of life is not your wealth and not your control. It's the gospel. Jesus is your buffer from the anxieties and fears of life. Because what are you trying to get in wealth? You're trying to get security, right? Jesus offers way better security. He offers eternal security. What are you trying to get from that? Comfort, right? Jesus offers way better comfort. Wealth will fail you. Jesus will not fail you. Jesus is generous, not greedy. What are the things you're trying to accumulate from wealth? You're trying to get an identity, right? No, Jesus is your identity. He has circumcised you of the heart. And here's what's amazing. I want to end with this text just to encourage you. Not only does he richly provide in Jesus Christ, he absolutely, literally makes you infinitely rich. And when we give, it will not deplete any of our resources. When we're generous, it does not deplete our internal inheritance. Someone who's content in Christ is a generous man, generous woman. Look at what Paul said to the Philippian church in chapter 4, verse 19. He ended his whole letter after just showing how much he had suffered and how awesome Christ is, how he's everything. He says, and my God will supply every need of yours, this is the key, according to his 
riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I love this. Paul, James, Jesus, always get your heart to the source of everything. Man, the banks aren't the source of everything. The wealthy aren't the source of everything. Man, Jesus Christ is the source of everything. God will supply all your needs. Now, don't, don't misread this. According to what? His riches. In who? Jesus Christ. He doesn't say out of his riches. He says according to his riches. Okay, the reason this is massive is out of his riches is like me saying to some really wealthy person, hey, can you give me $5 of your trillion? He says according to however wealthy he is, you get all of it. Man, you get the eternal kingdom with all its benefits, with everything that Jesus Christ owns, solar systems, stars, planets, the new Jerusalem, no pain, evil gone, and justice banished. You get all of the riches of Christ. They're at your disposal. You have those for sure the moment he declares you righteous and puts you on the path to sanctification and he holds you fast as he empowers you by your spirit to walk this walk where now you're going, man, man, wealth can't be ultimate because look at who I am. Look at what I have. Why would I go after this trinket and toy on the table? Man, I've got the, the richest affair set before me. Man, I got something that's endlessly satisfying. So he says when God gives to us, he does not give in pity out of his riches. He gives according to it. He gives all of it. Just go home today and let your mind explode. Just go home and just sit on that text all afternoon and then try to watch something that would lure you away. 419. 419. What, that, that little piece of paper, 419. More grass, 419. You laugh, but it's serious, right? Nicer car, 419. It's all going to burn. You're not, you're not carrying that with you. That's reality. James is trying to center your focus on reality because he loves you. And God loves us, and he's calling us into something better. He does not want to see his kids enslaved to petty things. He wants to see his children joyful and excited and thankful. Here's what I love. Just when you thought he couldn't go further, he goes further. He says, according to his riches in glory. You know what that means? It means that for all these riches that are ours in Jesus Christ, you do not have a word in the English language to describe it. There's no ceiling. There's no bottom. There's no trunk that can contain it. It's according to his glory. See, when the Christian realizes this, he begins to realize there's nothing else to seek out. Man, nothing can make, I mean, nothing can make the man or woman in Christ any wealthier. Nothing. Nothing. I mean, someone could give me, gift me something huge tomorrow, and it, it cannot make me wealthier. It's impossible if I have Jesus Christ. So this morning, if you find yourself discontent, restless, anxious, ask yourself, what's the ground you're landing on? Um, what's the source of your identity? Are you, are you hoarding for yourself? What are those things that you're close-fisted with? What is the unicorn you're chasing? It's just, it's mythical. It's not going to do what you think it'll do. 
Maybe some of you are literally just enslaved to this. You need to ask God to free you through his gospel. Man, it's not going to happen by you just being more generous. The answer is not, oh, cool, I'll just, I'll be more generous now, I'll give more. No, that'll be an effect of your heart being changed. Don't just fix your hands. That's morality. That's religion. You need a Jesus to come in, transform your heart, show you who he is, reveal his glory to you so that you're floored, so that your life produces good fruit, which leads to good works. But it's from the heart to the hands, not the hands to the heart. So many people think, man, if I can just do good works and somehow I'll be conformed more to the image of Jesus. What? No, he conforms you to the image of his son and then good works follow that. So where is it that you are maybe following culture's lie? Where do you get your truest sense of worth? If this thing was removed from you tomorrow, what would make you most angry? Let's ask God for help in this. Father, I I pray that in these moments, your Holy Spirit would move and work and clarify. Father, I pray for those who are not lovers of Jesus Christ, who have not submitted themselves to your good lordship, that you might humble them and be merciful to them this morning that you might cause them to be awakened by your gracious work in Jesus Christ, that they might see generosity in your gospel that is totally otherworldly, that they would see their dissatisfied heart and see how Christ is the answer for that heart. Would you move them to repentance and faith in your son? Would you free them from the pangs of wealth? Would you free them from the slavery and help them to walk into freedom? Father, for those of us that that love you and know you, would you reveal more in us, God, where there is misalignment? Reveal those spaces in us that are prone to wander and desire something outside of what you've already given us in Jesus Christ. Would you reset our hearts this morning? in a glad, firm place, unshakable ground, where, man, Jesus is mine. Jesus is mine. Give you praise, give you adoration, give you thanks, God. Keep our minds in Philippians 4.19. Warn us daily in James 5. God, protect us from us thinking our assets, our assets when deceptively they could be liabilities God, protect anyone from judgment from you right good judgment from you who is able to turn to you this morning in repentance and faith and trust you as savior and lord and forgiver of sin help us to know what is reality help us to realize that life is short eternity is long and you are good and you are saving Thank you for being so generous in your gospel so that we wouldn't have to be enslaved to the wealth of this world because we have the wealth of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.